It sounds like I'm on. All right, so we are transitioning from 1 Thessalonians into 2 Thessalonians today with chapter 1, but I, I want to just go over four takeaways from 1 Thessalonians that I think are helpful for us as we go through 2 Thessalonians, and they're still applicable to 2 Thessalonians. I want you to keep in mind that this congregation in Thessalonica is less than two years old, maybe even less than one year old. Paul started that congregation back in Acts chapter 17. He spent three whole weeks starting that congregation before he turned it over to a collection of first-time elders. So just wrap your mind around that. This is what we call a fledgling church plant. Very fragile at this point. The other thing that I want you to know, however, having said that, is this congregation, over the short time that Paul was involved with it, this congregation, Thessalonica, had gained a great reputation for being a spiritually healthy church in respect to God's Word, here it goes, and the work, the ministry of Jesus. So due to that reputation, this is the fourth one, Due to its reputation as a healthy biblical church, Thessalonica was dealing with persecution issues, and in 2 Thessalonians we're going to see that they're going to be dealing with teacher, false teacher issues. And that tells us that Satan has painted a bullseye on this congregation. So 1 Thessalonians also emphasizes that mutual love between the pastor and the congregation, between the congregation and Pastor Paul in this case. Keep those things in mind because they play an important role in how this, how this uh, second letter unfolds. And so now we turn our attention to, to these three chapters of 2 Thessalonians. And I want to say this up front, the main issue of 2 Thessalonians will not become apparent until chapter 2. And that's next week with Brian. Chapter 1 today is laying the groundwork by Pastor Paul and this strategy that he has in mind with dealing with church drama that has occurred inside of the Thessalonian congregation. And then finally in chapter 3, there's some other minor issues that are still connected with some false teaching that takes place in chapter 3. So with that background, I want to read the text and get us started. If you don't have a Bible, there's some underneath the chairs in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, period, you're welcome to take one of those Bibles as our gift to you. So we start chapter 1, verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you. Peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. 
Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness in faith, in all your persecutions, and the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence, he's referring to the persecutions and the afflictions. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling, may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have appointed these 12 verses for us to consider this morning with me in the lead. I just pray, Father, that between my words and the hearts of our audience that the connection would be clear, crystal clear, and that the message you want us to take away from these 12 verses today and make a part of our steadfast faith life would be cemented. Bless us now, Father, as we undertake this message. Amen. All right, so here's how we're going to approach this chapter. Satan has a strategy. Satan will it wants to attack from the outside, and he does that in Thessalonica with persecution. But that's not, his, that's not the only prong of his attack. Satan wants to attack on the inside by planting false teachers to create doubt, chaos, and eventually implosion of this young congregation. So he has that strategy, and he's using it to create this hair-on-fire church drama issue that happens in this, in this particular letter. That drama simply is a fake letter allegedly written and signed by Paul that claims Christ has already returned. Fake news. All right? But Paul also has a strategy. And I mean to say Pastor Paul. He has a strategy. He is going to approach this situation of church drama in a very 
non-reactive, cool, calm, collected sort of way. He is not going to get all emotionally upset because his credibility, his trust, has dared to be challenged by this letter, this issue of this letter. Instead, he has a plan. And it's all based upon the word steadfast there in verse 4. Steadfast. If you read the Bible, you're going to run across the word steadfast, steadfastness, steadfastly, all over the place, old and new. It's a military term. And it just uh, refers to a soldier in a defensive position that is bound and determined that he's going to be steadfast in that position no matter what the enemy throws at him. There's a story that has changed over the years. I think this is the first version of it. There's a British government official, and he's asked about the British soldiers that he's watching and the French soldiers that they're training with. And the British official says, well, they're both brave, but those British soldiers, they stay brave 10 minutes longer than any other soldier on the field. That is a challenge this morning that I just posed to us. How do you consider the strength of your life? Is it steadfast? Is it something that's firm enough, built on solid ground, that's willing to stay in the fight against our flesh, the world, and the devil until ten minutes after they're gone? We will be attacked. That's guaranteed all the way from Genesis 3.15. That Satan and the seed of, 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 of Eve are going to be at each other's head and heel from then all the way to the end of the age. And we see an example of Genesis 3.15 that unfolds in the first letter with persecution from the outside and now another more subtle attack which Satan is good at taking place here in this second letter. So I just want you to keep in mind, when we talk about persecution, when we talk about being exposed to false teaching, keep this in mind. It's not when, it's not if, it's when. Satan has been probing your spiritual life for weaknesses ever since you came to faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, ever since you claim the Bible to be the authority, the truthful authority of your faith. Satan has been looking for a way to cut your knees out from underneath you. Will your faith outlast that kind of attack? So here's the theme statement. When, not if, Satan attacks, don't be surprised. Be steadfast. Now, I have four lessons, four observations that um, we're going to go through this morning, but I'm going to call them steadfast stakes. Not to be confused with Texas Roadhouse stakes, but steadfast stakes in the ground. And there's four of them. Steadfast stake number one, be steadfast in your identity as a believer. Steadfast stake number two, be steadfast in your testimony, your living message of the faith. Steadfast stake number three, be steadfast in your confident hope of our Lord's second coming. 
That's the biggest portion of this text. And steadfast stake number four is be steadfast in prayer. Be steadfast in prayer. So this is how Paul's going to manage this attack on the church, on his own credibility, on his trustability in the eyes of these Thessalonians who are scratching their heads right now is, well, what, what is, what's going on with Paul? Why didn't he tell us this in the past? And it all starts with steadfast stake number one. Be steadfast in your identity as a believer. If you look at verses one and two, the greeting for this letter, and you were to flip back to 1 Thessalonians verses 1 and 2, here's what you're going to see. Same three companions mentioned in both greetings. Same God and Lord Jesus Christ mentioned in both greetings. Same reference to the grace and the peace of God in both greetings. Paul is displaying his identity has not changed from letter one to letter two. Paul is, as I mentioned, presenting himself as non-reactive to a church who is emotionally in chaos right now because of this letter. Paul is saying, I'm not surprised. I'm the same steadfast Paul that I was in the first letter. You didn't question my identity in the first letter. And in this letter, the second letter, when we get to chapter 3, he's going to actually write these words. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It's the way I write. So steadfastness stake in his identity. He's saying, calm down, trust me, believe me, because it's really me talking to you through the letter number two. We got this. So Paul knows that his identity as an apostle traveling around through these foreign lands, his identity is important. Do you remember in Acts chapter 19, the seven sons of Sceva? So they had heard Paul and they became believers but then they thought it would be a good idea if they started out on their own and start exercising demonic spirits from people in the region. And so they approach this person who's um, possessed and they say, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And if you know that chapter, here's how the demon responds. Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. But who are you guys? Identity. It's important to credibility. It's important right here in our own congregation. We have four men appointed as our elders. Is identity something that we consider when we're nominating, considering these men for the position, position of an elder in this church? And those of you that have been members for a while, you know that it's a very lengthy process. You've been, probably been contacted by an elder saying, what do you know about so-and-so? But let's fast forward, because we have four men whose identity uh, we can trust as biblical in, 
in character in, in every way, Brian and JD and Caleb and back there in the booth, Eddie. But what if they, uh, one Sunday, if they said something that was unbiblical? Or worse, what if you witnessed something outside of this church that was totally out of character for a person that you knew was a man of God? At least that's what they claim. If their identity wavers, our trust can suffer. Possibly our faith life. So what do we ask you to do over these elders? And if you haven't done it before, please start. We, as a congregation, are to pray for the elders and the deacons in our church. We need to pray for for their work, for their character, for their conduct, for their teaching and preaching, for their caring for us. Pray for these men. You might have thought I was going to leave you out of this conversation, but that's not going to be the case because identity in the pew is also important. You reflect a portion of society. And so in our society, we have gender identity. We have gender confusion. You remember this question from last year? What is a woman? And there were... Reporters that were interviewing women on street, street corners <clears throat> and asking them, excuse me, <clears throat> and asking them that question. And then this question was posed to a nominee for the Supreme Court. And she responded by saying, I can't answer that. Not in this context. I'm not a biologist. Identity. Identity in you, the believer. You, the walking through the world Christian believer. Identity is important. So compare this, I, what is a woman thing, to a scenario from the Old Testament where God has given Moses a task, go and talk to the elders about getting out of Egypt. And Moses says, well, who should I say is sending me? How does God answer that? I am. Tell him, I am. There was no confusion in God's mind as to his identity. And so 1 Peter, second, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 describes the church as the priesthood of all believers. You are the believers. You're in this church. You have a ministry. Whether you knew that or not, You have a ministry. We exist to know Jesus and to make Him known. That is our identity as members of this believing Bible church. The fruits of our spirit identify us. Our character and conduct identifies us. When we're steadfast in our identity, what happens? Our credibility, our trustworthiness, is apparent. People look at us as individual sanctuary doors that are inviting them to come into our lives and to share spiritual challenges with with us in the safety of our identity as a trusted believer in God, in Jesus. It may be one of those people 
whose identity was a Bible-believing Christian, who actually, their identity was what you attracted, attracted you to Jesus. You saw the genuineness in their faith, that they really, truly were, were living and testifying that they were a believer. Now, you are that person. You are that invitation, that living invitation that asks people to be a part of this family we call the church. So identity. Don't be surprised when it's attacked. Be steadfast and hold on with a grip to your identity as a steadfast believer. Now if we move on to verses 3 and 4, we're going to find stake number 2, steadfast in our message. Is our message consistent? <clears throat> After I became a chaplain, we had conferences that we went to. And in one of those conferences, a Navy recruiter addressed our audience. And he said, you know, it's often said that recruiters lie. Right? And I just want you to know, we don't lie. The truth changes. And that was my introduction to the woke culture that only believes in relative truth, not absolute truth. And I'm, I know we have former recruiters in the room. I, I trust that you are steadfast in your messaging. And I'm sure that many of you have been confronted by similar examples where the truth you thought you knew is no longer the truth that the world acknowledges. But don't be surprised. It happens. Be steadfast in your truth. Last summer, Fox News reported that the Communist Party in China was going to rewrite the Bible over 10 years, rewrite the Bible, and take out those portions that didn't support communism and insert verses that supported the Communist Party's version of truth. So again, it's important to note that what Paul writes in verses 3 and 4 is perfectly in line with what he wrote in the first letter. He knew it was important for his credibility and for the trust of the Thessalonians that he was consistent in a biblical message to them. Nothing he said in 1 Thessalonians changed when he wrote 2 Thessalonians. Even going back further, nothing changed when he was with them in Acts chapter 17 for three weeks to when he wrote 1 Thessalonians to when he wrote 2 Thessalonians. And this is why steadfastness in messaging the truth of God's Word is important. Let's just talk about spiritual leaders for a moment in their teaching and their preaching. If you're not steadfast, if you're not consistent in your messaging, we know that you will pick it up because you've been given the accountability factor in this process. It's your responsibility, it's your opportunity to check the truth as the Bereans did in the uh, book of Acts. Let me give you one example from from American church history. There was a denomination called the Millerites in about the year 1840. And it was the Millerites, their pastor's name was William Miller. And he believed that he had uncovered the end of the world. 
as to when Christ was coming back. And he knew it was going to take place somewhere between 1843 and 1844. Well, the members of his church, hey, the pastor said it, it must be true, they sold their properties. They sold their belongings. And they went up and camped in the mountains with with Pastor, Pastor Miller. Well, it didn't happen, did it? He went back and checked his numbers and decided he was off by six months. So they stayed. Didn't happen, did it? But he's not the only one. That, that Millerites, you might recognize them today as Seventh-day Adventists. Seventh-day Adventists believe that hell is temporary. You go there and burn, you're annihilated, you cease to exist. That's what they believe about the end times. Islam. Islam. They have a Jesus in the Quran that they've picked out. But is it the same Jesus that you and I believe in? Absolutely not. And did you know that according to Muslim beliefs, you are encouraged as a Muslim to lie to the non-Muslim. Who's the father of lies? So don't be surprised. Be steadfast in your messaging. When our leaders are unwavering in their truthful, biblical messaging to us, we are encouraged. We become spiritually healthier as we go down deeper and deeper into the truth of God's holy word. We become confidently more steadfast in our own faith life. Unfortunately, wavering faith life in the pews is also a challenge for the church these days. Paul warns us in Ephesians 4 that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, by deceitful schemes. And even clearer in Galatians, Paul says, if even we, or an angel from heaven were to preach any other gospel to you than what we've preached to you, let him be accursed. That's how Paul affirms the credibility and the trustworthiness of his message to the Thessalonians. But these passages are also a warning for us to not be surprised, but to be prepared to to have a steadfast message in our lives that is consistent with what you said previously and what the Bible says. Now we're moving on to the largest section, verses 5 through 10. Stake, steadfast stake number three is this. Be steadfast in your hope for the return of Christ. Now, we were reading out of an ESV version for this morning, and if you have that ESV version, maybe you noted there's a lot of uh, alliteration going on, inflicted, afflicted, throughout this whole ten verses. That's somewhat on purpose on the part of the editors of the ESV, because Paul is building on his first two pledges of steadfastness. His unwavering identity and his unwavering message 
Paul is saying, I, the true Paul, am telling you with my authority as an apostle that Christ has not returned yet. And here's my proof. The inflictors of evil, those false teachers, have not yet been punished. And the afflicted, you the Thessalonians, have not been glorified. That means Christ hasn't come back yet. Now if you stop and think for a moment, should these Thessalonians have heard that illustration before this? Go back to Matthew 25, when Jesus talked about the sheep and the goats. There is that illustration. And these Thessalonians, I'm sure Paul told them about what Jesus had to say, and Paul and many others believed that the second coming was going to happen in their lifetime. So I'm pretty sure it was going to be on his agenda of things to teach the people. That's an indication of the chaos that they're reacting to. That this seed of doubt that Satan, this grenade that Satan has dropped in their midst. Paul is steadfastly reminding them that Christ will return as promised, but he's not yet returned. Now I doubt that there's anybody in this room who are unsure about whether or not Jesus Christ is coming back again. According to the Pew Research Center, 95% of evangelicals, that's us, believe that Christ is coming back. But you know there's another number lower down for other Christian churches here in the United States. There's some mainline denominations in which the answer to this question, is Christ coming back? Only 60% were able to say, yeah, yeah, we believe that. Yet the second coming of Christ is not one of the top three subjects that we Bible-believing Christians frequently want to tackle in our conversations with each other. When's the last time you and a friend talk about the chapters of Daniel or Ezekiel or Revelation about end times? Is that a conversation that's uncomfortable or awkward? I want to give you just a couple of examples from the Gospels as to why the second coming of Christ should be just on the same equal status as the first coming of Christ in your faith life. Remember when Lazarus died and and Jesus went and greeted Martha and was counseling her by saying, your brother will rise again? How does Martha reply? I know. He will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Here's my point. She also went on to say that Jesus was the promised Son of God. Her daily faith covered the entire life of Jesus from when he was just a promise to when he came back on the last day. And that brings me to Mary. Not Martha's sister, the other Mary, the mother of Jesus. She didn't know when the angel could contact her and said, you're going to be the mother of the promised Messiah. She said, let it happen to me as you will. She didn't know 
what date that birth was going to take place. But she knew that she had nine months to get ready for it. She knew that she was in the season of childbearing, and like every pregnant mother, she thought about that day when that new baby life is a part of my life. She thought about every detail, just like pregnant moms do today. Everything I knew to get ready, just like pregnant moms today. She didn't care what day the baby was going to be ready. She wasn't going to be surprised when the baby was born. She was going to be steadfastly prepared to be the mother that this child deserved. So we have plenty of prophetic passages about the first coming of Jesus in the Old Testament. And we know most of them. We know before Jesus was born that he was going to be born in Bethlehem. We know from Isaiah that he was going to be born of a virgin. And we know other things about his coming. We also have dozens of passages in the Old and New Testament about the second coming of Christ. Not the date. But he's coming. Will you be ready? Are you steadfastly prepared for his coming? Paul is encouraging this audience and us that Christ's second return is simply just as deserving of our steadfast attention to detail to our preparation for that coming as the first coming of Christ. That's his message to the audience in Thessalonians. It's not whether you believe, but are you steadfast in that belief, that stake that I am confident in the hope of Christ? Do you see your belief in Christ's return as part of your daily faith life, as part of your message as a believer? Do you shy away from discussions about the return of Christ because you don't want to come across as the nut in the room? Are you biblically competent to talk about the return of Jesus appropriately with someone? All of these questions that I just asked would be indicators of where you are on steadfastness in your faith in regards to that subject. Talking about the second coming of Christ should be just as easy as talking about the first coming of Christ. Don't be surprised. Be prepared. Now since I've mentioned the first and second coming of Christ, I want to emphasize that behind these four stakes is the steadfastness of Jesus. If you look at verses 7 through 9, it says that if you don't have that saving faith in Jesus, then you're going to be suffering the same fate as the actual false teachers and persecutors of believers. And in verse 12, Paul says, without a saving faith, there's no glory for Jesus. There's no glory for you. The angels celebrate the glorious victory of Jesus in the life of every sinner who repents. But there's no glorious celebration in heaven for a sinner who does not repent. Only sadness. So it's that stake of faith in his death and resurrection that provides the foundation 
for our victory and the sheer glory that that faith brings on the last day with Jesus. What Paul is teaching in this chapter is our focus of faith needs to be on a victorious Christ of the past, a victorious Christ of the future, so that we know what it's like to have a victorious Christ in our present. Maybe you're not there today. Maybe you're kind of, sort of there, but not really sure. I would encourage you to pray. I would encourage you to pray for some kind of an encounter with Jesus in which you, someone is planting a seed of faith in your life with their testimony, with their credibility. I would encourage you to pray that the Holy Spirit would work the rest of the miracle of faith in your lives. I would encourage you to pray to become more aware how the sin in your lives, which God sees, turns into sorrow over that sin. I would encourage you to pray for deeper conviction that when Jesus died on that cross for the sins of the world, your name was among those that He died for. I would encourage you to just pray for deeper confidence in that truth that Jesus died for you. Don't be surprised that Jesus would die for you. Be prepared to steadfastly live a faith life of appreciation that He did die for you. Now if you haven't had the opportunity or the desire or the notion to pray that kind of prayer, <clears throat> our elders will be up here in front. You can come and talk to them. They'll listen to your questions. Prayer. That's our last stake. Be steadfast in prayer. Verses 1 and 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. The love of every one of you is increasing. In chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, there's actually going to be a word-for-word -word prayer from Paul for the Thessalonians. In chapter 3, verse 1, he's going to ask the Thessalonians, pray for me and Silas and, and Timothy. But look at verse 11. He tells them that they should be praying for these two things. One, that God would make you, Thessalonians, worthy of His calling. You're not quite there yet. In other words, when Christ returns, will your faith life be ready? And the second request, that God may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power. In other words, when Christ returns, will Christ look at you and your faith life and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. So in one sentence, Paul is asking you to pray steadfastly. Steadfastly. For steadfastness for strength in the face of persecution, for steadfastness in the face of internal challenges like like deceptive lies, church drama. I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say that it's doubtful that Paul throughout his entire ministry only prayed for the Thessalonians. And 
did not encourage just the Thessalonians to be steadfast in prayer. But these verses are meant for us as well. Last week, J.D. preached on a theme, Embrace the Church. What better way to embrace the church than in prayer for each other? Are you, right now, in this season of your faith, do you frequently pray for the steadfastness of faith in other people's lives? Do we pray for better health and safe travel and non-believing family, friends, and, and all other kinds of worry causes? But we're coming into a season of this world's history where praying for steadfastness ought to be moved up the list of priorities. How often do we pray for someone steadfast when we know they're being persecuted in some horrible way? When they're dealing with deception and drama in their lives? So what I'm encouraging you to consider after listening to the truth in this text is simply this. If you have a prayer partner, make sure that that prayer partner is praying for your level of steadfastness in the face of personal, internal, and external challenges. I want you, us, to be on the lookout in these challenging times that we're facing in our current world in crisis for opportunities to pray for steadfastness on behalf of others. We're sitting in this upper room pretty much safe from any attack that might be out there against Christians. But just a couple of months ago around Christmas time, in Africa, an entire congregation was slaughtered in the pews because they were Christians. So you may know of a person who attends church and has reported to you false teaching. Pray for that person. Pray for that church. You know what I, I... To just end this message, what I would like to you to do is to just rise and pray with me right now these two petitions. Please rise and join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, there's a lot of things we could pray about this morning, and I, I just pray that you would listen to the private petitions that are on the hearts and minds of some of these people, maybe even more than some this morning. But Father, I would like to lead them in prayer, have them join me in prayer for these two subjects. Father, there are believers, flesh and blood believers just like us, that are in parts of this world that are suffering horribly from attacks physical attacks on their lives. I just lift these, these members, these congregations up to you, Father, that have to whisper just to worship you. I pray for them and ask that you give them strength, protection from the evil that wants to destroy them. And it's happening here in our own United States as well. Persecution, maybe not as severe, undoubtedly not as severe, but yes, Father, persecution exists here in America as well. But secondly, Father, I just would also like to lift up congregations and individuals who have been blinded to the truth of your word by false teaching that takes place. 
whether they hear it over YouTube or whether they hear it from somebody else's pulpit, I just pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would draw them back into the truth of your word. That, that, that together, Father, we could be a church, a true church, that is steadfast, steadfast in our faith, in who you are and what you have done for us. I ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, asking that your will be done through our identity, through our message, through our steadfastness. Amen. You may be seated.